Our first reading today is from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, starting at verse 26. I will be reading from the English Standard Version, as opposed to the NIV, starting at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the seas, and the birds of the air, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over everything creeping that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created them. And male and female, he created them. Our second reading is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, starting at verse 8. For it was by grace you have been saved, through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus through good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and of the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together. To become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. It's great that we can all be here. Particular welcome if you're visiting. Uh, it's wonderful. We're doing a series at the moment. Uh, we're looking at uh, a series that we've called Answers for a Questioning World, where we're looking at some of the key topics that, uh, as you look out into our society, you see are really kind of uh, engaging our society's uh, thinking. Uh, and this morning we're looking at the question of unity and unity in a divided world. Now, if you're following along, I've got um, an outline, a simple outline there in the notes. You'll find it's there. Uh, four points. There's an introduction where I'll just explore and actually convince you that this is a, to- this is a topic we need to talk about. Uh, looking at uh, solidarity in creation, solidarity in redemption, and living in solidarity. You know where we're going? Okay. Now, let me, let, me, let me show you why I think this is an issue. If you're paying attention this Australia Day, uh, the deputy leader of the opposition, a lady by the name of Tanya Plibersek, you've probably heard of her, yes? Okay, she came out and said something uh, that, uh, for some people, was pretty unremarkable. She came out and she advocated that school students should do, like the American school students do, make a declaration of 
uh, allegiance, uh, similar to what uh, people, when they become citizens, declare, that they have it as part of their regular routine in school. And she says, you can be proud of your citizenship and dedicated to progress. You can, make, you can cherish this nation and want to make it better. And she wrote on Twitter a little bit later on, patriotism, like mateship, is about solidarity. It's about what we owe each other as citizens. Now, I don't know if you noticed her saying this. Uh, I don't know if you noticed that it created quite a reaction. For some of us, we look at this and go, what's the big deal? For other people, it is a really big deal. And if you, uh, if you follow Twitter, I don't normally follow Twitter. It's, uh, it's not something I find personally edifying. Uh, but uh, if you jumped onto Tanya Plibersek's Twitter feed, I've given you some of the nicer comments here. Do you not understand why people are deeply offended by your proposal or do you not just care? Cherish this nation? What nonsense form of attachment to a place is that? What even are you and what even is this party you're a part of? No, thank you. I'm actually disgusted of being an Australian. There were some of the nicer comments that were made uh, that are there. But you see, and some of us maybe are sitting here this morning going, yeah, I'd be happy to stand up and declare allegiance. I'd be happy for my kids doing that. Maybe, maybe you're the other side, that you actually go, nah, over my dead body are my kids going to do that? It created a bit of a storm. I don't know if you remember, um, there was a young girl who, uh, when they sang the national anthem at school, the girl up in Queensland, uh, created a, uh, a bit of a furor that she wouldn't stand and sing. And uh, for a little while, there was a little bit of a, uh, a ruckus around her that all the politicians got involved in. But whatever you believe on these issues, and I'm not saying we should or we shouldn't, but whatever you believe, what you see if you look at our society at the moment, is greater division marked by greater hostility and greater intensity of debate. It used to be that people could disagree and disagree in a robust way, but now it seems that we need to rip each other to pieces. We need not just to say that I disagree with you, but we need to say that you are somehow uh, morally deficient. What even are you? Someone asks Tanya Plibersek, what even is this party you're a, party of, you're a part of? Uh, how dare you even suggest that we might do this? It's not just I disagree with the idea that you've put forward and here are my reasons. It's let's attack you personally. And it's interesting, isn't it? We have a society that talks now more about inclusion than it ever has. If you've been around for a few years like I sort of have, uh, you'll notice that back when I was at school, no one talked about inclusion. But it seems that the every, every second word these days is inclusion, isn't it? But we have a society that uh, talks more, but I think more and more people in our society experience exclusion. They feel more alienated, more distant from those others around them. Think about the debate that went around at the last election. Think about the reaction when those who would have liked to see a Labor government didn't get what they wanted. And some people were advocating it's time just to get up and move to New Zealand because they've obviously got the perfect Prime Minister over there. Uh, and uh, 
I find it quite funny that actually uh, applications for New Zealand immigration uh, actually spiked the day after the, uh, the Liberal election win last time. So anyway, make of that what you will. But where does this come from? Where does this come from? And some of us may be scratching our heads and just thinking, this isn't what we grew up with. It was different before. And you're right. For some of us, particularly if you're on a younger spectrum, this is, you, you may be going, what do you mean it's different? This is the way it's always been. No, it hasn't. Let me explain a little bit. The whole question of being united is a question that ultimately comes back to uh, the question of identity. And how do you form identity? So think about yourself. Uh, if I stand up here and say... Uh, I'm I'm going to form my own identity as as a young man, okay? And I look at you people out there who have less hair than I do uh, and whose hair is more grey than mine is, and I I, I contrast myself to you. I am not like you. My hair, yeah, there's a bit of grey, but it's still mainly brown, okay? And I don't do anything to it, okay? I'm a young man, okay? I define myself in opposition to others, As I define myself and my group, I'm saying these people are like me and these people are not. Does that make sense? And sociologists will tell you that's basically how we form identity. You know, you might be one of those people who thinks of yourself as tall. That's because you look down on the rest of us, don't you? Okay, and you look around and someone walks in who's got to have to stoop to get through the door uh, and you look at them in the eye and you go, we are the tall people. Okay, you've defined yourself in opposition to everyone else who is not uh, vertically gifted the way that you are. We define ourselves with respect to other people. We find people who are like us. We are us and they are them. And often there is value attached. So, depends. Let's, let's, let's do the us and them thing, okay? I understand there are two AFL teams uh, in this city. Is that right? Yeah, okay. And, and you guys get on really well, don't you? Okay. Uh, so when, when the Crows win, all the port, port team, all the port supporters are there going, isn't that wonderful? Another Adelaide team has won. Isn't that great? I love to see the other team of Adelaide do so well. And... You know, when Port got to the final and got absolutely thumped, it's not like the Crows supporters were there going, isn't this wonderful? No, actually, we're mourning with you, Port people. We are, we're grieving, we're alongside you. No, 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 we were delighting. We were rejoicing. We were defining ourselves in opposition and there could not be someone worse than someone who barracks for them, okay? Once I went to a Swans uh, North Melbourne game when I lived in Sydney uh, and uh, the people who'd given us the tickets were North Melbourne members. So guess where we were sitting? Uh, As Sydney-siders, we were sitting in the middle of the North Melbourne crowd at the SCG that was so full-on, all these North Melbourne supporters that had travelled up from Melbourne. So we were sitting amongst the hardcore uh, and they hated us. I reckon there was a couple of old ladies who were behind us who would have spat on us if they could have got away with it. They despised us and we decided when 
the Swans were down by quite a few goals at th- halfway through the, the fourth quarter, that it was probably time to leave and not give them the delight of the end. Okay? Uh, but we define ourselves in opposition and we attach value to that. Now, how did we do it in the past? Now, the thing that we went to wasn't height, wasn't who you supported in footy, it wasn't those kind of things. It was which family you belong to. It was which tribe you were part of. It was which nation you called home. Is which religion. We were defined in terms of relationship to place, to people and to God. And that's how we did it. And can I say, there were some very real problems with that. As a person, you would be born into a family, and what did you do? Particularly, like in a very traditional society, uh, the men would grow up and they would be what their father, they would do what their father did. They would. And the women would grow up and they would marry who their parents told them to marry. And people found this somewhat restrictive. Try it on, parents, if you've got kids. Suggest to your, parent, your children that you might choose their marriage partners. Okay? Um, but my father was an engineer. I would be an engineer because that's what we do. That's who we are. And it was hard to get out of that mould. People found it personally restrictive. But it also, on a societal level, had some devastating effects. You found racism, nationalism, The Nazis sought to elevate the German Volk, the people, over all others to prove the supremacy of their people. And other people have been doing that throughout history. There was exclusion and oppression. So even though there was unity, the unity that was found in these things, in people, in tribe, in family, in nation, in religion... It was exclusive. We didn't feel it if we were part of the majority. But if you were part of the minority, you really did feel it. So if you were part of an ethnic minority back in the 50s, that was extreme. If you were part of a religious minority in a society dominated by one religion, and some of you will know what this is like, My parents grew up in a time where the Protestants and the Catholics didn't speak and they would cross the road when they saw each other coming. Nice, isn't it? Okay. So how do we do it now? Because we've we've rightly looked at this and said, this doesn't work very well. We looked at the oppression and the injustice and said, I don't want a part of that. And our society has moved away from groups, the collective, to the individual. And we're told now that we have to find our own identity. And so we don't find it so much in family. We don't find it so much in religion. We don't find it in which tribe we belong to. We're told that we each have to find our own identity, which means that our identity shifts and changes. It means it morphs and at different times we are different things and different people are telling us that our identity is this or this or this. And we find ourselves uniting in smaller and smaller and smaller groups. We find people who are like us in this particular way. And so instead of being Australia, 
we now play a game called identity politics, where politicians try and play off different groups against each other. We saw it in the last election. You know, this retirement tax, the franking credit thing that I don't understand, and I'm sure you do, uh, but it was played off the younger Australians who were being ripped off by the older Australians. Different groups playing off against each other. We see tribalism. We see competition within our society. Now, I would suggest that we are more fragmented than we've ever been. But can I say the unity that we had in the past wasn't as good as some people think it was. Now, the question we need to ask this morning after a fairly extensive introduction is can biblical Christianity actually offer us anything? So let's dive in. And, yeah, that's interesting. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, foundational scripture for the question of identity and unity. Now, I've picked on the ESV, so Joel didn't go rogue for us this morning and just choose his own Bible. Uh, I asked him to read from the ESV because the ESV actually captures the original language better. Now, the NIV, don't lose your trust in the NIV, that translation. The NIV recognises that we don't use the language of man to speak for humanity as a united whole anymore, okay? We don't talk about the, the, the brotherhood of man in a way that actually has women and men feeling included. The NIV recognises that our language has shifted and so translates uh, some of the singulars as plurals and tra- translates man as humanity. But I just want to make a point. So, ladies, don't get cranky with me that I'm being misogynist and all the rest of it here. Let me just explain what I'm trying to say. What we have in the start of chapter of verse 27 is the singular. God created man. That's man not as in an individual person, but man as in mankind, as in humanity, but it's singular. He created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. It's singular. There is a fundamental unity to humanity. That is what Genesis 1.27 is teaching us. And in that unity, there is a fundamental diversity. In the image of God, he created him. Singular, male and female, he created them. So there is a unity to humanity and there is a diversity within that unity. Does that make sense? Basically, the Bible is actually teaching us that we as men and women are united as humanity. We are not two separate species. Women are not from Mars and men are not from... No, it's the other way around, isn't it? Uh, Wherever it was that we were meant to be from, we're actually from the same place. God created humanity. And he created in that unity a diversity. And that teaches us something that is radical. It means that regardless of the colour of your skin, regardless of the makeup of your genetic heritage, regardless of whether you call yourself male or female or something else, regardless of what you believe, That if you are human, there is an essential unity to us. 
and an essential dignity and worth. So regardless of what race you belong to, there is no superhuman race. There is not one among uh, others. There is not one that is worthy of discrimination and exploitation. There is a fundamental dignity and worth for all humanity. We need to recognise that. And that's the fundamental teaching of the Bible. The first time the Bible mentions humanity, it says that we have a fundamental dignity and worth as being made in the image of God. And we are all in the image of God. doesn't matter what colour, what creed, what race, what gender. Can I say, Christians have not always got this right. Nations that have claimed a great Christian heritage have done horrific things. Race-based slavery in the US. They wrote in their constitution, their declaration of independence, we hold it to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And men, they meant men and women. But it took them hundreds of years and they are still working out the implications of that statement that is drawn from Genesis 1. The apartheid system in South Africa that saw religion co-opted to oppress a racial difference. And lest you think I'm just pointing at other people, indigenous oppression in Australia. We have a horrible history of this. And sometimes Christians have been complicit in it. We have not always got this right. But, can I say a few things? Firstly, there is no such thing as a Christian country. Christians, yes. Christian men and women, boys and girls, yes. Christian nation, no. And sin remains. So even though a a country may claim we are a Christian nation, that would teach you that they are a nation of sinners. And sinners will sin against each other. That is there. The other thing is, just because you claim to do something in God's name doesn't mean that God endorses it. So just because God is claimed to support your particular view, just because you claim that you can find it in Scripture, doesn't mean that it's right. And so not everything that has been done in God's name, in the name of Christ, is something that Christ himself would own. We have to acknowledge that. And we also have to acknowledge that where we have Christians who are committed to living out the implications of God's word, incredible things happen. William Wilberforce, Bible-believing Christian, along with his mates, men and women from the Clapham sect, you may or may not have heard of them, these people over decades led the the quest, the task of abolishing slavery through the British Empire, driven from their Christian convictions. Wedgwood, you know, the China makers, Josiah Wedgwood got in with these people and produced plates that had an image of an African slave and written around it, am I not 
a brother and a friend. I've forgotten what the last word is. But affirming the teaching of Genesis 1.27. Martin Luther King stood and called on Christian America, and I say there's no Christian nations, but a nation that claims Christ, claims, claims a great Christian heritage, called on them to live truly in light of that heritage, quoted scripture, called on them to acknowledge the Declaration of Independence was built upon the teaching of God's word. There is a solidarity that is in creation. But some of you will say, but Cameron, back in that introduction, that extended introduction, you told me that religion divides. And maybe you've seen that. Can I say, you're right. Religion does divide. But can I say, Christianity is not like other religions. Brings me to my third point. Solidarity in redemption. Christianity is not like other religions because religion as a group, and you can pick your religion, it says, if I perform, if I keep the rules, then I will be accepted. What's at the heart of that? Performance. And if I keep the rules, my performance makes me worthy. Can you see how this then builds me up? And then I can look down on you people who don't keep the rules, even because you might claim the religion, but you're not as good, not as committed, not as righteous as I am. Or maybe, worse still, you're someone who doesn't even belong to my group because I have built my own righteousness. I can exclude. But Christianity doesn't work like that. The true biblical Christianity that is based on the gospel of Jesus Christ, it doesn't work on our merit. Remember the old hymn, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress, helpless look to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me saviour or I die. Christianity doesn't say, if you keep the rules, then God loves you. Christianity says, because Christ kept the rules. Because Christ did everything that was necessary. Because Christ performed on the basis of his performance and my trust in him, and we'll get to that, I am accepted. And so our obedience doesn't earn acceptance, it flows from acceptance. Do you see how it's different? At the heart of Christianity, the thing that makes it different is grace. Is the fact that we don't earn God's favour. So yes, there is a difference between Christian and non-Christian. That is a true divide. But can I look at someone who doesn't share my faith and say, I'm better than you? No. No. Christianity tells me that we are all in the image of God, that we are all sinners, and it is only by the grace of God that I know his forgiveness and I belong to his family. So I am aware that I do not stand on my merit 
And I have no foundation to look down on someone else. I can't do that. And faith that comes to us, it says here, this is how grace is explained in Ephesians 2. He says, it's by grace that you have been saved through faith. Grace is God's free gift. It is grace through faith. And even the faith that you have is not from yourselves. It is the gift from God so that you may not boast. It is not by works. So Christian, if you look down on someone else who is not a Christian, you haven't got the gospel. As you come to Christ, you acknowledge that you bring him nothing other than your sin and the condemnation that you deserved. And he takes that and he gives you everything. Faith is simply the empty hands that come looking to be filled. Now, the division that came, came, we see it in Ephesians 2. So if you've got your Bible, it's probably helpful having this. I'll put a few bits up on the screen. We actually see how religion divides. If you go to verse 11, Paul writes this. He says, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles, not Jews, by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Can't you see that on the back of the jacket, you know? The circumcision, I don't think it's going to take off, probably. Um, But they took great pride in that we are better than... You see the labelling? The uncircumcised. You can imagine it, the unwashed, the unclean, the masses, the hoi polloi, the others that are there. You see the condemnation that is there. And in verse 14, we hear about the hostility and the dividing wall. The thing that gets between people and pulls them apart because one group think they're better than the other. That was religion. That's not biblical religion. That's how Israel had misused their identity as God's people. But look at verse 16. Christ's purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. It wasn't that you had one group that needed to be saved and another group that didn't. You had Jew that needed Christ and Gentile that needed Christ, and the gospel saves them both. Christ on the cross dies for them both. They are equal in need and grace comes to them both. And because it's grace, no one can boast. Paul tells us that Jew and Gentile both come to the same father. They both come by the same saviour. They both come through the work of the same spirit. There is a fundamental unity that comes with redemption. And Christ destroys the barrier that divides people from each other by destroying the barrier that divides us from God. As he deals with the vertical relationship and deals with our sin and reconciles us to God, as we see that, he reconciles us to one another. The gospel has radically social implications. Do you see that? Because it tells us 
that regardless of your age, your IQ, your socioeconomics, your religious performance, your ethnicity, your gender, how you see yourself, you all come to God through Christ. You all come on the basis of his grace. You all receive faith as a gift from God. And so men can't look down on women. Asians can't look down on Africans. Anglos can't look down on everyone else. We are all in here together. The the divisions have been broken. Grace is the great leveller. And you see this wonderful picture where Paul is talking to the non-Jewish believers and he says, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. You are fellow citizens. You belong to the people of God. You are members of his household. You belong to the family of God. You're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the great promises of God's word, with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone underneath the feet of everyone who names Christ. In him, in Christ, the whole building, the image here is the temple, is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together like bricks interlocking into a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. It's incredible. It's a privilege that we are united with people from around the globe. It's one of the things I love about Trinity Church Brighton. I think there's five or six different ethnic groups within my growth group. It's a wonderful thing that we can share fellowship together with young and old, with people from every different race, with lots of people from around the world, lots of people from different backgrounds. We have a unity in Christ. So how do we live? How then do we live? Because if we are going to live out this unity, the unity that God intended in creation and the unity that God made possible through Christ, how do we live it out? Well, if you are a Christian, you cannot leave the gospel behind. As soon as you leave the gospel, you start building your identity on something else and generally that will be something that you do or something that you are. The gospel builds our identity on Christ and his perfect work. The gospel tells me I am a sinner who is saved by grace. I am a sinner who is adopted through the cross as a child of God, not by my merits, but by Christ's. We must stay in the gospel. That's why we share the Lord's Supper. That's why Christ gave it to us, that we might be constantly reminding ourselves that we are accepted on the basis of his finished work. We find humility in the gospel as it destroys every pretense, everything that we set up to say, God, look at this. No, the gospel says we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we find assurance that as we come to Christ, we know that nothing will turn us away. Always forgiven. Always accepted. No fear of judgment before your throne. We sung it before. It's true. If your faith is in Christ, he has dealt with judgment. And God's arms are the Father's arms, 
welcoming us home. Stay in the gospel. Watch for that critical spirit. Watch for you othering others. When you start to think of someone else in a different category to you. You know, look at me. I serve on all these rosters. And there's that freeloader over there. You know, I'm so much better. Look, if they knew how much I gave to this church, they, hear the language, they, me, no, we, us. Watch out if you start othering. Watch out for that critical spirit. Watch out for you standing on your righteousness and your performance and looking at them. That destroys churches and it destroys the unity that Christ won for us. We need to recognise that this church and every church that calls on Christ is an anticipation and a foretaste of what is coming. The Apostle John sees in Revelation 7 verse 9, he sees a great multitude before the throne from every nation, tribe, people and language. An incredible unity as they gather before the throne and before the Lamb. And this is here now as we come by the gospel as God's people. Rejoice in it. Hold to the unity that actually allows us to deal with disagreements. That we don't actually all have to be the same. We don't actually all have to be in perfect agreement about everything because we have Christ. And the Christ that is in us and amongst us binds us together with ties that are so strong that we can deal with disagreements, we can deal with challenges. It's not always easy. They don't just go away. But you know what? If we agree on Christ... That trumps everything. How far can that unity stretch? Well, it can stretch as far as the gospel. It can stretch as far as the bounds of grace. So if someone comes to me and says, I am someone who loves God because of what Christ has done for me. My sins have been taken my place with Christ is assured by his work. The person who says that to me is my brother or sister. And you know what? We can disagree about all sorts of things. And I'm sure if we go long enough, we can find those things to disagree about. If you'd like to, we can do it later over tea and coffee. But, but if we are together seeing the gospel, we cannot other each other. We cannot say, oh, well, you couldn't be a real Christian, even though you acknowledge Jesus like I acknowledge Jesus because you have a different view on baptism than I do. It's ridiculous. Oh, you have a different view on the time span of the millennium and blah, 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 blah. Christians find all sorts of things. It's because they take their eyes off the gospel. It doesn't mean those things aren't important, but it means they can never, they should never divide us. It doesn't mean, though, that we can't be discerning. And where there are Christians and churches, unfortunately, that turn from that gospel, we cannot be in fellowship. We cannot be united 
Because the very thing that unites us is not there. But we can stand in solidarity. Solidarity is different to unity. Solidarity says, I will stand with you, whether you like it or not. I will stand for you, whether you want me to, whether you respect that. I am here because that's what Christ did for us. While we were still sinners, while we were God's enemies, Romans 5 tells us twice in a state, in just a few verses, Christ died for us. Christ stood in solidarity with us and for us. And so Christians, how do we deal with the world? How how do we deal with those who name the name of Christ but deny his gospel? We don't stand at a distance and condemn. Because if God did that to us, we would be justly condemned. We stand alongside. Christians should never be vilifying. Christians should never be excluding. Christians should never be running someone down because they disagree with us. It's okay to say, I disagree with you. But that doesn't lessen your dignity as a human being. That doesn't mean that you are worth less. That I am somehow more special. No, we are all equally in the image of God. We stand alongside. And that's hard. We have a society now that says to tolerate someone means you must endorse them. And there are things that Christians we can't endorse. But it doesn't mean we reject. It doesn't mean that we exclude. It doesn't mean that we join in and play the we're a persecuted minority card too. I think that's a, that's a dead end. I think we stand with them. We stand for them. We love them in a way that is shaped by the gospel of Christ. We serve them. We are there to pick them up. We are there to share life with them. Think about who that might be for you. It's easy to do it with someone who's like us. Think about, and you may even look around the congregation now and think, yeah, I'm quite happy that I sit down the back left and they sit down the front right. I'm not aware of any particular issues between the back left and the front right. But you know what? In my last church, I was aware Because I'd been there long enough. I'd been there longer than most of them had. And I was aware that there were people who sat here and people that sat there. And at morning tea, they just found themselves in different directions. Can I suggest if that is you, go back to the gospel. Maybe you need to repent. This is your brother or sister. If you're in society and you see people and you go, actually, I don't want to talk to them. I wouldn't want to get to know them. You move into a neighbourhood and all of a sudden you find that your neighbour is from a particular ethnic group and you think, oh, goodness. Maybe you need to repent. No, actually, there's no maybe there. You need to repent. Look at them. They are in the image of God. Christ died for them as he died for you. They have dignity and value and worth. And in Christ's name, we can love them. Remember Christ, the man of sorrows, familiar with pain, rejected by people, 
so that we might be accepted. And in his name, we go out and we share his love and we stand with this world. We stand in solidarity to serve and to love in his name. Let's pray. Lord, this is a huge topic. And it cuts across many of our own prejudices, our own sense of self. Father, where we have built upon our own, our own performance, our ethnicity, our intelligence, our socioeconomics, our gender, where we have puffed ourselves up over and against those that you have made in your image, those that you have given the same dignity and worth as we have, Father, lead us to repent. Where we have allowed divisions to come in, to tarnish the unity that you have given us in Christ, the unity that is just a foretaste of the beautiful unity that we will have gathered with every tribe, nation, tongue and language around the throne. Lord, let us repent. And Father, I do pray for those who may not know Christ, who may look at this fragmented world and wonder how on earth unity and solidarity might be found. Father, I do pray that you would open their eyes that they might see that it is found through the gospel of grace. And with us, they might long for the day where all divisions are done away with, where everyone in all our diversity that you have blessed us with. Everyone is united around the throne, giving glory to you, to your Son, through the Spirit. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.